0: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. In the wake of last week's deadly school shooting in Parkland, Florida, we hear a lot of the same and usual response from Washington lawmakers. Thoughts and prayers were issued. Standard statements on a need for, quote, change are given in the most vague terms possible, and ultimately, no one in charge offered a real interest in altering federal law to stop mass shootings from happening. But, Even though our Congress seems intent on doing nothing to make Americans safer from mass carnage of this sort, it doesn't mean federal authorities aren't thinking about how the government can best respond to minimize the frequency or damage done by those who would terrorize innocent civilians. Craig Fugate is the former head of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Fugate served during the Obama administration. He says the political conversation around mass shootings is too fraught. Pugate tells Detroit Today producer Laura Weber Davis the conversation in Washington needs to shift toward evidence-based research on what makes killers kill and how to end that cycle of violence.
1: The NRA has lobbied and been successful at banning any federal dollars going for research. The only places that do research that are even uh, relative to this is in Canada. And one of the things they found is we ought to treat shootings like an infectious disease that every time there's a shooting, it affects more people and we get more shootings. That's not an anti-gun message, but we can't use that because we are prohibited from funding research into why these shootings take place. The best information we have is from the Secret Service, who was ordered to investigate these shootings. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it comes back to the fundamental issue of why is one organization able to muzzle the discussion to promote gun sales at the expense of doing something about this? And it's not necessarily about banning guns, but it is about why are we not talking about the root issue? And everybody says, well, it's a mental health issue. Yet.
2: We're not doing anything about mental health either. We're cutting
1: the funding there. Right. So um, as long as we're not willing to talk about. And here's the, here's the difference in Australia, right. they had one of these shootings. Their parliament banned all automatic weapons. And they
2: did round them up, too, and didn't they? Round they round them up. Yeah.
1: Now, Australia is a pretty um, uh, rugged place. Yeah. They have guns, but they recognized that automatic weapons had no place in their society. Right. And they banned them.
2: Is, is it possible to talk in the context of our conversation about gun and, and shoot, mass shootings as it relates to emergency response? And sure. And this sort of fits in the wheelhouse of... A federal emergency response, and yeah, we
1: we, we actually uh, promoted uh, courses after uh, the Mumbai attack in India, huh. um, looking at what happened there and how unprepared communities were for active shooters. We had primarily focused in schools after Columbine, uh, so FEMA uh, worked with the FBI and developed a uh, we we'll call it Talls, but it's a joint terrorism course for local officials for active shooters, and. It basically boils down to two things, stop the killing, stop the dying. Uh, most active shooters are very short duration. Uh, first in has to go on, and you don't have time to wait for your tactical teams and everything. you got to stop the killing. Most active shooters only run about 10 minutes. Uh, it's about the average. But the other thing that was uh, more distressing was uh, in Aurora, remember the story that President Obama talked about, the, the girl who had put her finger in her friend's juggler and, and took yeah. her out and had to walk blocks to get to the fire rescue folks? right. Well, that's because up until then, we always staged everybody away from the scene until it was secure. And the problem was people were bleeding to death. Mm. So we actually worked with CDC and launched a campaign, Stop the Bleed. Um, If we're not going to deal with the root cause of why we have a gun problem, uh, let's at least deal with the fact that many people were bleeding out and bystanders uh, and quick application of pressure and tourniquets could save lives.
2: So... Tell me about, just philosophically, as we've seen these mass shootings um, increase in frequency and number of people who are dying at the scene of these shootings, um, you know, even if we're changing from a federal response or from an emergency response uh, where we are perhaps triaging people to save lives on the spot, tell me about philosophically where you stand on um, gun ownership as being a, a disaster that needs relief, like a like a hurricane or a hurricane you can plan for, but maybe a tornado you can't. And these are things that fall in the, in the wheelhouse of FEMA. And maybe gun shoot, mass shootings aren't in FEMA's purview, but should we start thinking about these mass shootings as an unforeseen weather event response in some ways? Well, they fall into what
1: we call the all-hazard category, that um, you don't always get. You don't get to pick your next disaster, and a lot of things don't come with forecast. Um, so, on the technological side, on the active shooters, uh, these things can happen. Uh, we do a lot of this through our homeland security programs and preparing and training local officials how to deal with active shooter events. Um, you know, initially, I think a lot of our thought was based upon what we had seen in other countries that this could be terrorist based but unfortunately, we know in the U.S. that a lot of times it's not a terrorist base. It's an individual lone wolf actor uh, who may not have any affiliations that, you know, is responsible for these heinous acts. Um, and so from the standpoint of FEMA, we always looked at the consequence. Uh, that's really what our business was of when this happens. How do you respond more effectively? How do you reduce the loss of life? We engage with Center for Disease Control and others about how to do things like a campaign of stopping the bleed and engaging Uh, both responders into managing risk and and responding faster to those uh, people. Because what we found was people were literally bleeding to death and that if we could stop the bleeding, uh, we could increase the survivors. And so, you know, FEMA's job isn't always looking at what causes the problem. Mm -hmm. It was dealing with the consequences. Um, But I think perhaps the way we should be uh, scoping uh, these situations is not so much a gun control issue as a public health issue. And looking at the epidemiology of why this is happening, um, how it spreads, and really study this from the standpoint of what is the public health consequences of this and look at how we could change things. We've done this in trauma and other events, but we've known for some time that gunshots was one of the leading killers of young men and, and teenage adults. Right. Uh, so you know, I think I would frame this, You know, maybe we're not getting anywhere with the gun debate, Let's move this to a public health policy debate and really look at this from the standpoint of this is a uh, disease. Just like we looked at when we started looking at trauma that way, we actually started seeing ways to reduce the impacts and start bringing down those deaths. Uh, so I would take a I would take a look back since there doesn't seem to be much interest uh, in our political leadership to address the guns. Let's take a step back and address this as a public health issue.
2: But even if we tackle it from two different angles, aren't we— Essentially, going to reach the same conclusions about the types of things that need to be done, even if on the fringes you're you're looking at different types of policies that may be done. Like, for instance, uh, a mental health discussion versus um, rounding up AR-15s and running them over with you know some sort of bulldozer. Even if you're talking about two opposites of, of that spectrum, aren't you going to? end up landing at a sort of central point, which is regulations around the number of guns or the way that people can access guns?
1: You may, but I think the, the, the third rail of this has always been about the guns. And there are uh, organizations like the NRA who doesn't want to have that debate. And I think the minute you start talking about gun ownership, um, it, you, you're just not going to go anywhere. I think there needs to be a more pragmatic discussion of the types of guns uh, how many rounds of ammunition do you need to have, uh, things like bump stocks and other things which take semi-automatic and turn them into almost automatic weapons, and really go, what are those issues that we should be addressing? And gun ownership isn't where I start. It is ammunition, uh, the the rounds and clips. Uh, very few of these people that have been invo- involved in active shooters um, have gone in with single shots or a limited round weapon. So Let's start looking at what is going on and does this make sense. But I would also look at it from the standpoint more holistically of why do people do this? Not that the weapons are available. And I think saying this is a mental health issue is also limiting what we should be looking at, is why in society do people see this as a way to act out Hmm. whatever they're doing? Mm -hmm. And are there things that we can do to inoculate against those things? Because as much as people think the simple answer is, if you get rid of guns, it will go away. uh, There are other ways to do mass murder. Right. Why is it we're seeing mass murderers? What's causing that? Is Is it a lack of access to mental health or is it something else that's going on that we could do things to begin looking at how to inoculate society against those risks? But we won't get there unless we're willing to fund research into these shootings and look at all of the causes and factors, not just look at guns. But I certainly have to question the fact that we're seeing these people using uh, multiple rounds, lots of ammunition, multiple weapons. Uh, That is something I think we should look at, not banning gun ownership, but going how much ammunition and how many rounds in a clip actually makes sense before you're now, only reason you're doing that is to kill. But I would take a step back and really look at this from the more holistic of, a, of, a, of really going, what are all the factors here? Why? Not that the weapons are being used or gunned, but why do people feel such rage right. to kill and to kill large numbers of people, many of whom are total strangers to them? And this is a relatively recent phenomenon in u s. history. We've always had mass murders and serial killers, but not to the degree that we've seen in schools and other locations.
2: mass destruction, right?
1: Why? What so, has changed that has caused that or allowed that to grow?
2: it's It's interesting. Um, it's interesting that you raise that point. I was thinking to myself the other day that it seems our country has been our government has been relatively successful at a campaign to dissuade. Uh, young men from going off and joining ISIS and terrorist organizations. That, by and large, our uh, our society has been able to dissuade those young men. As in comparison to some European countries who are struggling with that a little more. Some of that's proximity, but also I think that there has been a successful campaign here. It seems, and I, I'm just curious. Do you think that there's any way to um, promote a similar campaign? to dissuade these sort of lone wolves, because if you're not attacking an ideology, but rather uh, 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 an individual, that seems almost like an impossible task to me.
1: I think this is why we really need to fund the research, not look at this as a gun issue. I think guns are part of this, but not single out the guns. But look at why do people feel the need to do this? What is their triggers? Why are we seeing this increasing? Uh, are there things we can do to start turning that tide? Uh, just like we found with radicalization, uh, there were certain things that we began seeing patterns that if we could address that early enough, we could intervene in those situations. Uh, it's very hard, the very definition of the lone wolf means that it's very hard for intelligence or law enforcement to pick these people up. Right. Uh, when you look retrospective, go well, there are all these signs, yet there's all these signs that are so many that it's noise you don't know what to look for right so again i think this is one area of rather than just having a moment of silence which is what congress's reaction has been to these shootings why don't they look at funding not just a an argument that we need to get rid of guns because guns don't ask the question of why was there so much rage why did this person feel the need to kill people why did they feel the need to kill total strangers Until we can answer those questions and see what those patterns are, uh, I don't think guns will be the ultimate solution. Mm -hmm. Timothy McVeigh proved you don't have to have a gun to be a mass murderer.
2: Correct, right. Craig Fugate is our guest right now. He is the former administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency and also from 2009 to 2017, and he's now the chief emergency management officer at One Concern. Uh, Let's talk about research. Um, We are living in an era right now, where there is not a whole lot of value being placed by our from the White House or by our Congress on scientific research and those being the driving forces behind how policy is made or how uh how political ideology is reached do you ever do you ever get um discouraged by that this sh- sort of shift or the momentum toward Less and less research-based uh, uh, policy shifts. It seems to me, especially when we're talking about climate change, or we're talking about maybe uh, shooting research, gun research, that if the political will doesn't exist in the ideology of the individual politician or in their pocket, um, that it, it won't. It doesn't matter what the research will say. So, tell me a little bit about how, how that you, that's landed on you.
1: Well, I kind of looked at it this way. You know there's an old saying, power corrupts, but I've also learned money corrupts absolutely." And you know, when you talk about the Republican Party, they used to be the party known as a party of fact and reason. And yet you see too often where business interests or other groups who didn't like the narrative of the answer or what the facts were began distorting that by funding uh, disinformation campaigns or denial campaigns, or alternative uh, research, or alternative universe of answers. And so it became uh, kind of as if the science agreed with you, uh, then you you touted it. But if it didn't, you found ways to discredit it. And we've seen this pattern from uh, industries that were heavily vested in carbons, uh, whether it's coal mining, oil production, and how they began looking at the initial reports and how they needed to address that and how they would do that. And they do it through... A variety of things. And it is, it's is—it's interesting to me how, uh, if you go back to Reagan, when the issue of the ozone layers came up, the administration didn't argue the science, the arguments of what were we going to do about it. But they didn't start with, well, that's not really happening. Well, right. The data says it is. Well, we don't think the data is right. Uh, so when you talk about climate change and climate disruption, you get all these answers from it's an outright denial to it's a hoax to it isn't. But you know, when you have groups like Moody's, who's coming back and is now telling communities along the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast, that if they don't begin looking at how climate change will affect their communities, it could affect their bond rating, Credit
2: rating. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense, because they're going to be really disproportionately well, affected by rising their sea bonds
1: levels. are based upon yeah. their taxable property. If that taxable right. property is <laughs> at risk to increasing storm impacts, and so... There, there's this tendency, I think, sometimes that it's become uh, acceptable to deny or cr- disc- try to discredit facts when it doesn't fit your narrative.
2: It doesn't feel right.
1: But the yeah. financial institutions deal with investors and return on investments, and they can't afford not to address these issues. And so it's, it's kind of interesting when you see on one side people are saying, this isn't a big deal or it's been overhyped or we don't know what the right warm temperature is. Maybe being warmer is better. Moody's is coming out going, this could affect the bond ratings and the credit worthiness of communities if you don't begin addressing it.
2: That would probably also be uh, sort of along the lines of this recent dust up over offshore drilling that I would imagine Florida with its beautiful beach property, um, if there was an oil spill, would be disproportionately affected. And you're talking about a Republican governor who said, hey, we don't want offshore drilling it's something probably fairly similar that it's one moneyed interest first, another because ultimately your property is all you have.
1: Yeah, and let's be uh, frank here. Both parties are guilty of this.
2: Absolutely.
1: So, you know, the era of when science was the arbitrator of let the facts speak. Now, what you want to do about it is where the debate come from. Now we see, well, let's attack the science because the answer isn't what we want. Or we'll cherry pick what we want Well, we forget science is complex and constantly evolving. And so what we know today isn't what we'll know tomorrow. And that may mean what our assumptions were or what we thought the facts were may now have changed based upon new information or new updates. And so I think, again, it's in Washington, it was interesting how you had to communicate. It's like, I go to hearings and in my budget were funding to help build resiliency and mitigate, mitigate climate change. And I was told by one party that that's a non-starter. We're not going to go there. We're not going to discuss it. We're taking it out of your budget. And so I asked a different question. I said, well, let's not talk about climate change. Let's talk about insurable risk. If the private sector is not willing to insure that risk, why is the taxpayer on the hook for subsidizing it? That actually got their attention. (laughs) Sure. Um, And I'm not even talking about climate change. I'm just talking about the insurability of risk and the fact that Most recently, uh, another big bailout uh, of supplemental funding was approved for Florida, Texas, and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And I call it a bailout because almost all of those impacts of those storms were based upon decisions that state and local governments had made over decades about where and how they build that weren't sustainable even for current risk, not even future risk. And you as a taxpayer paying for that because in most cases, they either failed to or did not insure much of the property that was damaged or destroyed. And I think that's one of the things people understand. FEMA only pays for uninsured losses. Right. That makes sense for response costs, calling out the guard, opening up shelters, feeding, all that emergency work. But the bulk of the money is actually going to people who didn't have insurance, local governments who didn't have insurance, churches, synagogues, and mosques who didn't have insurance that had damages from these storms that you're underwriting. And I started pushing back going, this is, I think, where— we really need to talk to people on both ends of the spectrum, both fiscal conservatives and environmentalists. Why are we continuing to see growth and development in high-risk areas that the only reason we're sustaining it is is because you, the taxpayer, underwrite that risk versus the private sector managing that risk? And my question, again, to many members of Congress who didn't want to talk about climate change, well, then why is the taxpayer underwriting this risk? Because somebody's still building there, and it's getting worse. And if we don't address that, how many more of these disasters are we going to be paying for?
2: Right. Craig Fugate is our guest right now. He's the former administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, otherwise known as FEMA, from 2009 to 2017. Let's, I want to talk to you for a few minutes, Craig, about Puerto Rico, speaking of these areas that were going to become increasingly hard hit, and people who can't necessarily afford to move either. Um, we've been seeing a scaling back uh, of FEMA's involvement uh, since the two hurricanes hit last year, um, but there's also whether whether or not our response has been appropriate from the mainland. There is, it seems to me, a general disinterest or uh, lack of con- a general lack of concern for this island over there that many people don't even realize is part of America and that those are Americans and we should be taking care of them, is there, is there this possibility that as these events are happening more frequently that those of us who don't live on the coasts or aren't living in areas that are hard hit by hurricane or other major weather events, that there's just sort of like a, eh, well, somebody will take care of it. It's just this feeling of it'll get taken care of. And how, how do we make sure that people are taken care of if they can't really afford to move to other places or maybe relocate to somewhere that isn't going to be as hard hit?
1: Well, first of all, FEMA doesn't take that approach. Um, it's common that once the camera leaves and national attention moves to the next crisis, people forget about the disaster. FEMA's not going to do that. But FEMA's also not the long-term recovery agency. I mean, we FEMA has very specific roles to get in there and do. But part of this will be a lot of the additional money from HUD and other organizations. And in Puerto Rico, we had, and I, I was down there, I have not been down since the hurricanes, but as FEMA administrator, I was down there multiple times meeting with governors and the teams down there and looking at both there and the U.S. Virgin Islands, who are also heavily impacted by Maria. And you have to look at the pre-existing conditions that affected that impact. Um, and then post, what are you going to do differently? So part of what we'll be doing differently is, yep, yeah, there are a lot of areas that we probably shouldn't rebuild in, but there's a lot of other areas we need to rebuild for the risk. And I think this is where we need to make more focus on is just don't rebuild it back the way it was hmm. or necessarily build it back to the current standards. Sure. Build it back to future risk. And we know that for every dollar that we invest in building back in resiliency – It saves 4 to $6 in future losses. And so one of the things that we had been trying to get people to focus on is when you rebuild from all of these hurricanes, when you rebuild from the wildfires, when you rebuild from earthquakes, don't build it back the way it was. Take the risk into account and also take into account the future risk and the better science and better tools we have in building codes. A home – and this is a perfect example down in Florida Keys on Marathon – The governor of Florida was down there, and they were looking at three different homes. One was totally gone, slab, everything destroyed. It was built back in the 70s. The second home had heavy damage, a lot of water damage, but it had been elevated. But it was built prior to the 2002 building code changes. It had heavy damage. Then there was a home built after the 2004-2005 hurricane season. It had virtually no damage. Hmm. So it illustrates that by using better codes— and adapting to the risk, we can actually build in areas that minimize future impacts. And so hopefully, you know, both the Commonwealth, but also the local communities and the federal agency funding this won't just be looking at rebuilding things the way it was, but looking at how do we build it back better? Because the people that are least able to, to you know, move are also the people that can least afford to be wiped out again. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to make those investments with our tax dollars... Yes, it costs more money, but it's more effective to build back stronger now than to get wiped out again and pay for it a second time. And so it is both appealing, I think, to fiscal conservatives that we can reduce future costs, but also it's important to the social society of fabric. How many times can a family go through this before the community loses its identity, people don't move back, families are totally destroyed? It's bad enough to go through it one time. So when we're investing and rebuilding, it isn't that everybody's got to leave. It's that we got to make sure we're building back in ways that are sustainable for those risks. And we're willing to make the investments, not just to build it back the way it was.
2: Craig Fugate, thank you so much for joining us today on Detroit Today.
0: Thank you. That was Detroit Today senior producer Laura Weber-Davis speaking with former head of FEMA, Craig Fugate. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.